When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, and today we are praying for Ukraine. We are praying for the cessation of hostilities there, for peace, for a just peace. We pray for the withdrawal of Russian soldiers, for the establishment of order and safety for all. And these are things that are heavy on our hearts today, for sure. Uh, We're also kicking off Lent here, and my son has tested positive for COVID on Sunday, so I've been taking care of him here, and Sarah's been bringing supplies for us. Thankful for her and my son. He's doing a lot better than the last two nights today. Thanks be to God, and I've tested negative a couple times now. So hoping that continues, but who knows? I was very much exposed, so please pray for us here today. But thank, thankful to have made it this far in the pandemic. If you've survived this pandemic, um, that's something to be thankful for. So thanks be to God. As much as I love the three dogs that came to um, church on Sunday... Dogs in the Bible are sometimes not spoken of favorably. Um, This doesn't mean that people in Bible times didn't love dogs. We have lots of stories of people that love dogs and puppies in the ancient world. We know that they uh, tied puppies up on leashes um, as fencing was not so elaborate as today. Dogs were allowed to run free at night, um, only in certain places in the land of Israel. Josephus tells us that uh, in the cities of Israel at the time of Jesus, you were allowed to, you had to leash your dog at night. You weren't allowed to let your dog roam free at night, unless you lived in a border city uh, along the borders of the land, then you were allowed to let your dog free at night, sort of as an extra security patrol. Um, This is what Josephus tells us. Do with that what you will. It means people were owning dogs for protection, but probably for companionship too. I don't think that's um, changed since time immemorial. But dogs are dogs, and when dogs' primary form of sustenance is what they can find out and about, especially during the day. The dogs were just kind of let out to explore and eat whatever they could. Um, They don't get a good reputation for um, culinary propriety and might even attack you if they're in large enough numbers. And so St. Paul, writing to the Philippians, an urban congregation that would have known about city dogs and the relationship between them and people says beware of dogs and by dogs he is referring to a particular kind of people that take advantage of the weak that take advantage of situations that present themselves to wound people's consciences and the way they're doing it is by requiring circumcision for christians They're requiring Christians to be circumcised. 
This was a big debate in the early church, a debate that was full of, just like every debate that's big, full of huge questions trying to be sorted out. And in that huge questions trying to be sorted out moment of the church, there's a lot of stuff that happens that isn't really good. We know that um, Paul had a spiritual son named Timothy, who he writes several, two epistles to, who is not circumcised when he starts working with Paul and traveling with him. And Paul, as a rabbi, circumcises him as a young man, just so he can not be controversial anymore when they go to Jewish Christians who are requiring circumcision for membership in the church. But Paul knows, and he preaches and teaches, that you don't need to be circumcised to be a Christian. You need to be baptized. That is the mark of Christianity. That is the initiatory initiation into the family of God is baptism. And it's not only for men, but for women. And so this is a new thing in the world for Jewish Christians. It takes a while for for all of the Christians of that time to sort of figure out how to live. Um, And it's good, as Michael Curry, our presiding bishop, has preached. I got to hear him once preach about this, being at the Billy Graham rally. And Billy says, all right, it's time to come down and pray the sinner's prayer. So come on down. We've got people here to circumcise you. Uh, Come on down to the altar, (laughs) he says. Um, That'd be a harder sell, wouldn't it, Um, for Christianity? Christianity, from its earliest moment, has been a religion of trust and belief, a faith of trust, trusting in Jesus um, and God's action towards us, not so much what we perform or do. Circumcision was a good sign of that because it is something you do, you have done to you when before you can make a decision yourself. Um, On the eighth day, it it is performed. And baptism is similar to that in that it is God's grace that comes to us, not our good works going up to God and somehow registering um, in heaven. God is the one registering us in baptism. And so anyone that comes along and says, you have to do something additional, you have to do something extra to be a Christian, to be the real Christian, you have to know this thing or say this thing or do this thing. That is always taking away from what Jesus did on the cross. And circumcision in the early church was that controversy. This is not really much of a controversy anymore. It might be in some places. It doesn't seem to be in American Christianity. But we always have to be vigilant for ways that people are trying to lay heavy burdens on other people. As the church goes into the season of Lent, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold burdens that we have placed on people as a church through rigorous fasting laws and other things during Lent. Um, Whenever we talk about fasting or any kind of spiritual discipline, we're recognizing that that's not for everybody. Um, You don't have to do that to be a good Christian, to be a Christian at all. You don't have to do any of those things. The reason you're a Christian is because of what Jesus did for you. The only thing that you and I have contributed to our salvation is our sin. That's what we've contributed to our salvation, our sin. That's it. Nothing else. Um, So any kind of performative measure to show who's really a Christian um, 
is, is something that Paul gets really worked up about. He calls them mutilators of the flesh. Um, not that circumcision is in itself bad. Paul practiced it, as did many others and many Christians have. But the requirement of people who aren't interested in that is something that would be a heavy burden to put on somebody. And then Paul says that he has all the credentials he needs. He goes into this, as he does many times, a diatribe about himself. Um, he's, he's boasting in what Jesus has done for him. He has no confidence in the flesh. No confidence. Um, but if he did, he'd, be, he'd win. <laughs> um, Paul never shies away from using his life experience and all that he is to further the cause of the gospel. He, he does this over and over again in, his, in the stories we have of him and in his letters. He was circumcised on the eighth day, born of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church, as to zeal, and a righteousness under the law, blameless. And, the, and all this adds up, he says, as a loss. Um, even though this was a lot of hard work and he's glad he did it, proud of this, these things, it is a loss because of Christ. What the event of the crucifixion levels the ground for all of Jesus' followers. There is no better or worse Christian. There's no real or fake Christians. And this, the, the bitter edge of this is when we look at events around the world done by Christians and in our own lives as well, in our own communities. When Christians do bad things, are they really Christian? Um, and it's easy to say, well, they're not real Christians, like I'm a real Christian. Is Vladimir Putin a real Christian? Or is he a fake Christian? Um, these are almost impossible questions to answer. By your fruits, you will know them, Jesus said. And yet, to be a Christian, we have to claim those who do awful things as well. To not do that is to somehow set up this false dichotomy, this, this situation where we get an easy way out every time a Christian does something bad. And our Jewish neighbors look at us and our Muslim neighbors and Buddhist neighbors look at us and say, oh, that's easy. As soon as somebody does something bad, you pull their Christian card. <laughs> um, and that's not how it works. Um, the, the history of our church of all churches, the one church of Jesus Christ, is full of people who have been saved through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that salvation, the implications of it, is that no one can, no one can set themselves above another. Uh, and, and that inequality that Paul is combating here. This is, these are hard truths, and they're hard truths at Lent when we might seek to purify ourselves a little more or get, become a little more Christian or a little better Christians or something like that. The truth is we are saved through the grace of Jesus. That's what saves us, and that's what gives us confidence, and that's what Paul is boasting in. He's boasting in the power of the resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering. That is the mark of a Christian, to be a loser, to lose. That is the mark of Christianity. To share in the fellowships of Jesus' suffering. To have happen to us what happened to Jesus. 
That is the mark of a Christian. Because that is how we rise from the dead. That is how resurrection happens. So if you're feeling that death, as I know I am today, feeling the death of people in Ukraine, feeling the death of all the wars and conflicts of the world, feeling the little deaths in our own lives of dreams and hopes and plans and all the things that trouble our hearts, to know that in those moments I am closer to Jesus, I am experiencing the fellowship of his suffering. That is what makes us a Christian, to be in fellowship with Jesus Christ. And nothing we can do or undo or not do can change that. And that is the scandal of God's grace, that God saves us, that God loves us, and that God will never, ever let us go. That God will say, he's with me, she's with me, they're with me. Um, and to identify with us in that way is where we, we boast and have our confidence. So be confident today. Be boastful in Jesus, the fellowship of his sufferings the power of his resurrection. Amen. Pray a colic for the renewal of, for peace on 57. O God, who art the author of peace and lover of concord, in knowledge of whom standeth our eternal life, whose service is perfect freedom, defend us, thy humble servants, in all assaults of our enemies, that we, surely trusting in thy defense, may not fear the power of any adversaries through the might of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And a prayer for mission on 58. O God, who hast made of one blood all the peoples of the earth, and did send thy blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and those who are near, grant that people everywhere may seek after thee and find thee. Bring the nations into thy fold. Pour out thy Spirit upon all flesh and hasten the coming of thy kingdom. Through the same thy Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Almighty God, who has given us grace at this time with one accord to make our common supplication unto thee, and has promised through thy well-beloved Son that when two or three are gathered together in his name, thou wilt be in the midst of them, Fulfill now, O Lord, the desires and petitions of thy servants as may be best for us, granting us in this world knowledge of thy truth and the world to come, life everlasting. Amen. The word Lent means spring. It's not a particularly religious word, although it now in modern English means a churchy kind of thing, more than it means um, anything else for sure. Um, and it talks, it, it is a description of the 40 days before Easter. And we, we get this from the Bible. Um, if you turn in the Bible with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, Luke 4. The temptation of Jesus in the wilderness is attested in three Gospels. I think three Gospels. You have to check me on Gospel of John. Um, Mark just says he went into the wilderness where he was with the wild beasts. 
And Matthew and Luke both have accounts of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And it says for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing at all during those days. And when they were over, he was famished. So never was there a more true word of scripture spoken than (laughs) that. Um, I think after not eating for 40 days, I think famished would be beyond description of that experience. Uh, And yet this is what Jesus does at the very beginning of his ministry at the, at his baptism, after his baptism, the Holy spirit has driven him into the wilderness or led him into the wilderness in Luke's gospel. And the 40 days is just a time period of testing. We know 40 is the number of testing. The people of God were 40 years in the wilderness. Um, 40 there's a couple other forties in the Bible. Um, I think the the judgment that rains down from heaven in the form of water in the flood, 40 days and 40 nights, it rained. And so this number 40 um, is the magic number for trials and testing. Um, it's kind of amazing that even modern fitness and diet culture, pretty much, and recovery culture um, as well, um, all say the same thing. That if you can quit drinking or quit drugs or start going to the gym or whatever it is that makes, theoretically, makes your life better. If you can do it for 28 days, you can do it forever. Um, And that's pretty close to 40. The word quarantine comes from the word 40. 40 days that um, people that sailed from one place to another had to stay on the ship and not leave to be quarantined, to be doing the 40s um, is where we get that term, which was very common through most of human history um, since the Antonine Plague and probably before that as well, quarantines were in force. There's a lot of descriptions of the bishops, the early bishops of Texas coming to Texas. They would sail from the East Coast to New Orleans and from there they would have to quarantine before they were allowed into Texas since there was a border crossing involved and um, they could sort of police that all the way, the accounts I've read all the way into the 1900s, um, you have these bishops describing staying in New Orleans another couple weeks for the quarantine because yellow fever was breaking out here. So this is nothing new, but this time of testing and trial of 40 days um, recently, and I don't know how much recently, maybe since I've been an Episcopalian, I don't know, recently, 10 years, maybe longer, there's been an emphasis on not fasting during Lent, of doing, taking on a spiritual discipline or something positive in your life for Lent. And certainly as we're more aware of people's struggles with eating disorders, something I've struggled with myself, um, that uh, the reality of asking people to do different things with their eating habits can be really disastrous for a lot of people. So there's been an emphasis on not fasting. And yet the whole point of Lent connected to the story of Jesus fasting for 40 days is the primal story of Lent. That is where we get this from. 
So it's really hard to disassociate it completely from fasting, I think, um, because of Jesus' example. But it means you modify it uh, for, for your situation. It means you have to take a hard look at your own life and what you're capable of, what you think you're capable of. Talk to your doctor about what you're capable of doing um, and get that kind of consultation. And I imagine people that do that, talk with their therapist, um, actually probably have a much better experience of Lent than those who, like me, often set lofty goals of what we will accomplish. And then life hits me like on a Thursday and all the things I said I would do go out the window. So again, Lent is an exercise in understanding human frailty. Jesus experienced human frailty in his, he he was famished. I mean, there's no better experience of what it is to be human than to be really hungry. Um, I don't know if you were hungry as a kid much. Uh, I always feel like I was always hungry as a kid. Um, Hungry for treats and snacks, mostly. (laughs) Um, Any box of Cheez-Its that made it into our house was immediately devoured. There were five boys living there. Um, And that experience of hunger um, is, is something that modern Americans maybe experience less than humans throughout time and space and history. But it's still something that we experience. And Jesus was famished that that experience. So that's where Lent comes from. And the idea of it is that that if we can learn how to fast, then we can learn how to feast. And you can't do fasting unless you do feasting. So if you are doing something terrible, if you're doing something sinful for you, don't give it up for Lent. You should give up sin anytime, <laughs> all year round. <laughs> but if you're fasting, fasting is not giving up sin. It's giving up something good. Chocolate cake is good. Ice cream is good. Coffee's good. Beer is good. All those things are good. Um, and giving them up shows us how famished we really are as people. I think it exposes our frailty in a way that few other things do. For most situations in life, we can pretend that we're okay, but not when we're hungry. Um, That is not something most humans can really pretend and fake. Um, And then we have the guidance of Jesus about fasting. Is that, and we read it on Ash Wednesday in the church service. When you fast, do not be miserable. Don't Say how miserable you are. Don't walk around sad. Be happy. Rejoice. Um, wash your face. Get out there and do it. Um, because we we don't want to center ourselves in Christianity. That's not what Christians do. We center Jesus Christ. And so um, none of us will probably ever get to 40 days of fasting in our lifetimes. It's not something I've been able to do. Um, there are some people that have, I'm sure. Um, and it, my Pentecostal friend, Jason Blake, who is now deceased, may he rest in peace, would tell me glowing descriptions of his churches growing up would do 40 day fasts of like a liquid diet. You know, you could, as long as you could drink it, you, you could have it. So people were blending up hamburgers and things in the blender 
you know, and drinking them, which to me sounds a lot worse than fasting. <laughs> I don't know. So again, we are human beings that are very ingenious. We have ways around everything. Um, so when you set a, a rule of life for yourself during Lent, um, remember, like, it's, it's really just an arbitrary thing that um, you've done to draw closer to God. God doesn't love you any more or any less, no matter how you perform in that. Does that all make sense? Um, what are your thoughts or questions about uh, Lent from what I've just said? Reasons that fish is on the menu and, you know, steak is not. Um, medieval monks believe that one thing fasting was enabled you to do was to deal with your sexual urges and deal with temptation. Um, we often think of monks as very old people, but most of monks were teenagers and very young men. And that is sort of the age where I have heard young men uh, often have a lot of sexual desire. And so um, to deal with that, they believed that Animals who were procreated through sexual activity would encourage sexual virility and activity in the people that eat them. They believed that fish were not propagating through sexual activity because they laid eggs and things like that. Although it's kind of dicey when it comes to a lot of fish, I think, <laughs> biologically speaking, um, that, um, that they would not uh, by eating fish, you would not be feeding your libido, um, whereas by eating other animals, you would be. And I think that distinction has been fairly lost biologically over the years, but the, the distinction still remains that Catholic Christians will eat fish on Fridays. And I love eating fish, so it works out for me really well. But um, that's one way that Roman Catholics have understood Lent in that way. Um, Here's a little nice little old Anglo-Catholic graphic about confession. Um, if you can't schedule a confession for today, let's, let's do one during Lent. Um, I can connect you with a discreet priest if you would like someone other than me to do it. I will not be offended at all if you pick somebody other than me. Um, but you can see the confession happening there. The pancakes are being flipped. I don't recommend confessing near people cooking pancakes, but that's what the person here is doing. And then here's my chart. This is what I made for you. I'm going to send this out in a few minutes. Um, the Lenten challenge starting tomorrow. Some things for you to think about, consider and try maybe um, for Lent. I feel like for a lot of Episcopalians, Lent is sort of like, and should be a time to sort of do basic Christianity, basic Christianity, not superstar Christianity, not not fasting for 40 days or something like that. But basic Christianity to sort of get back to this fundamentals of the sport, if you will. Um, in basketball, you got to learn how to dribble and shoot. Um, you can do a lot of things in basketball, but you have to be able to dribble, pass the ball, shoot the ball. And, um, and in Christianity, the same thing. There are basics to it. Um, that we often drift away from in the life we have.
David, I, I, could you explain the 